Oh, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Ben. Welcome to Four Corners Church. There we are. You got me. All right. Hey, one more time. Happy Mother's Day. For all the ladies in the room, moms, not moms, all the ladies in the room, make sure you put your name and email address on this Connect card. At the end of the service, drop the card in the offering bucket. We are giving away $100 today just to celebrate moms. We'd love to give all of you, you're all worth more than that, to celebrate ladies today. But we don't have that kind of money around here. So what we're doing is we're going to do for the one what we wish we could do for everybody. But if you'll put it in after the service, somebody will draw these cards out. And whatever lady's name comes out first, uh, we'll contact you through your email. So make sure we can read it and we'll communicate with you that way. Hey, there are two special ladies uh, that are part of our church family. There are many, but there are two today I wanted to bring your attention to. Uh, The first one is a lady that many of you haven't met, but you know her husband. Uh, This week, um, Will... Lavellet, who is our worship pastor, and Rebecca, his wife, gave birth to their first child. Yeah, it's really, really cool. Really, I have a couple pictures here for you. Um, that is, look at, yes, look at, that's like an hour old. Look how wide-eyed. I mean, if you know Will at all, who is a member of our church family, he is like, go get the world. That's his son, friends, right there. <laughs> Uh, it's Landon Stephen. Stephen is Will's dad's name, so he's named after Will's dad, um, Lavellet. And uh, a couple more pictures here. Yeah, there's dad. Will's hand is bigger than his entire child. <laughs> the baby is uh, was 17 uh, inches long and seven pounds four ounces. I think we have another pic or two here. Is there another one? There's Rebecca. Yeah, isn't that sweet? Yeah. So she doesn't even look like she gave birth just a few minutes ago. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of crazy. So that happened uh, this weekend. And so our church, we believe in church growth, and our favorite way to do it is that way right there. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And so our church is full of, of families here. In fact, we believe the Lord put us uniquely in North Cincinnati to help families of all varieties and shapes, blended families, non-traditional families, traditional families. We believe God put us here uniquely to reach out to them and help men become godly and women become godly and families get healthy. And so I just wanted to say thank you for a church that allows us to gather an incredible staff team. Your faithfulness and your generosity does that. There's another lady in the room that I try not to embarrass too often around here, but uh, my wife is an incredible mom. And so today, Jill, a happy Mother's Day to you. I honor you today. Uh, We were chatting yesterday, and I mentioned to Jill that, honestly, out of all the many things she's done incredibly well, my, my wife is a memory maker. And for years, she has made it her mission, sincerely, to build incredible memories for me and the kids. And uh, you've done a remarkable job, um, just, just phenomenal. And so one more time, happy Mother's Day. And what I thought we would do, yeah, that's okay for all the ladies in the room, all the moms in the room, that's all good. Uh, I thought what we could do today, though, is we just pray. Because here's, here's the truth. When you, you come to a day like Mother's Day and there's an expectation of celebration, for many of you, you can get right behind that and it feels awesome for you because your mothers, while not perfect, were pretty good. And so you come behind a day like this and you're like, this is awesome. And if you're a mom in the room and your kids are celebrating you, it's awesome. But the truth is, is a day like this can bring up some pain for some folks in our church family. Some of you have lost moms, even like this year, and so today's extra hard for you, and you have our sympathies because that loss is big. It's big. And others of you, you would love to be a mom, and in our church family, this is normal and and not unique, but a lot of you just simply are unable in a traditional way uh, to become a mom, and this brings up pain for you. So I thought we would do is uh, what I have learned in my life I can do every time I'm up against a situation that I can't control or handle. 
I thought we'd just go to the Lord and pray and we'd thank him on the one hand for the incredible moms and ladies who make up this church. And I thought that we would also lift up those in our church family that are maybe struggling a little bit today because of loss uh, of one type or another. So would you just bow with me right now before we begin our message and let's give God some thanks and go to him with our concerns. Father, today um, we celebrate one of your greatest gifts in this world, the gift of uh, mothers and motherhood. Uh, it's, a, it's a hard job, Lord, and uh, children don't come with a user manual. They don't come with a set of instructions, and yet in this room there are represented incredible mothers, both present in the room and the children of incredible mothers that are here. And We're so grateful, God, that you saw fit in your wisdom to put people like moms in our lives. But God, all of your good gifts come with it in our broken and fallen world, the possibility of bringing pain as well. So I want to lift up the folks in our church family, God, who today brings up extra anxiety and concern. I pray specifically, God, for those who've lost their moms over the last few years, even this year, and today is extra hard for them. God, would your peace be upon them? I pray for uh, ladies and, and men in the room who are unable to have a family in the way that they had hoped and dreamed. And I pray, God, that you would minister to them as well today. And Lord, and I pray for all of us that are uh, the children of moms, that we would learn just how difficult it was to raise us. And it would bring us a humility and an honor to the position of motherhood. And God, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't pray for all of the families across our land and literally across the world. Your heart is for the fatherless and the orphan. And so often, God, in our broken world, there's extra weight on moms. So just be with them today. Give them your peace and your power. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, well, today we conclude a message series that we're calling Fixer Upper. And we've been looking at Nehemiah, the story in the Old Testament. And let me just kind of catch you up to the story as we get to chapter 6. So if you want to go in your Bible or in your message notes that you got, you can follow along. But here, here's the basic story. Nehemiah had been a slave in the king's house. He's a cup bearer to the king. It's an honored position, but it's still a slave position. And he finds out that in his homeland, things are not good. And so he goes to the king with his concern, and the king gives him special favor to go back to his homeland. And Nehemiah transitions from the role of a slave in the king's house to the role of a builder in his homeland. And specifically, he wants to rebuild the broken walls around the city of Jerusalem. The walls are broken in disrepair because a generation or so earlier, there had been a war there. And in that war, the temple was destroyed, the seat of their religious activity. The walls were destroyed and people were carted off back to the victor's hometown, which is where Nehemiah was, to live as slaves and as house servants primarily. So Nehemiah goes back and he wants to rebuild the walls because until the walls are up, the people who are his heritage can't sleep with both eyes closed. They have to leave one eye open wondering what calamity might yet befall them because they are unprotected. And while in Nehemiah's day the temple was rebuilt and there was some semblance of spiritual engagement, the walls were down so they were always under the threat of attack. And he loved his people. And he loved his heritage. And he gave himself to the task of rebuilding the walls. But it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy at all. There was obstacle after obstacle. The very physical task of taking heavy stone and replacing it. The very physical and personal physical threat of 
the outside people outside the walls bringing threat and harm to the builders and the inhabitants inside the walls. And then there were some up-close and personal attacks, just people who should have been on the same team fighting and, and, and co, uh, you know, bringing conflict among each other. And so there were all kinds of challenges for Nehemiah. He was a slave. He became a builder. But by the time we get to chapter 6, he's made a lot of momentum. There's been a lot moving forward. And in chapter 6, the walls are going to get done. And he's just... He's at the final 3% of the project. He's at the final 3% of the project. Now, we've been talking about building walls the whole time, but the truth is, is this is really not a story about walls. This is the story. It's a metaphoric story about the building of people's lives. And so as we've looked at Nehemiah's struggle with the walls, we've seen how his struggles correspond with the struggles in our life We've seen God's heart for Nehemiah as a builder is similar and reveals to us God's heart for our life and the way he's building our lives. And we've seen our Heavenly Father's character on display as he comes alongside people and he expresses to people his love and his compassion for them. And today, we're going to focus one more time on the fact that Jesus' favorite, one of his favorite ways to talk about the life God wants to build in you, one of his favorite tools and metaphors to use is the idea that God's building a, your life like a building. And he calls us to build the building of our lives on a solid foundation like rock, not on a shifting foundation like sand. And he says, if you'll let God build your life and build it on a solid foundation, when the storms come, and they always come, your house will stand, your life will stand. And if you build your house on shifting sand, when the storms come, and they always come, your house will not stand. And so we're not studying about Nehemiah, some historical reality. We're looking at a very present God who still builds lives, still builds families, still is great enough to overcome obstacles. And so we're going to get down to the final 3% today, and the wall's going to be done, but I want to talk to you about that final 3%. When you open up chapter 6, verse 1, Nehemiah doesn't know that he's so close to the finishing of the walls, all he's got to do is just stick with it. He doesn't know the handful of obstacles that are going to come his way in the final 3% of this project. He doesn't know them. He's just being faithful to pursue. But the final 3% can sometimes be the hardest part. Now, any of you who've done home remodel, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a room you want to redo. There's a bedroom you want to paint. There's some project you want to get done. And so you jump in and you do the thing. And in the first several hours of your engagement, you can demonstrate a lot of progress. When Jill and I moved into our house, it was mostly put together 20 years ago, but over the years, over 20 years, we've had to do a lot of, process, uh, a, a lot of, 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 of rebuilding and a lot of remodeling. And in the process of that, I've discovered the first several hours of your job, you can do a lot of great work. It looks like you're making a lot of momentum. One particular time, we were replacing all the flooring on our main floor. I was going from really ugly old carpet to this kind of laminate wood product. It's supposed to be indestructible for kids. And we have crazy kids, four of them, and they're pretty destructible. 
And uh, so we wanted a flooring that could outlast them. So we're going at it. And so the first day we ripped up all the old carpet. And by the end of the day, it's like progress. Woo, we're halfway home. The next couple days, we laid this flooring and it was like, woo, in just three days time, we're almost done. And then it came time to do all the specialty cuts and the trim. Good Lord. I try not to cuss, friends. I do. I'm a pastor. But if, there's this thing called cove cuts that you've got to do with, uh, with corners, corner cove cuts. And it'll try your sanctification. It'll, it'll push the boundaries of your spiritual maturity. It will. Now, here's the thing. The amount of square footage covered by the little corner stuff is pretty small. And it took as long for me to trim out the room as it did to lay almost 1,200 square feet of flooring. The final 3% can be hard. But the victory often depends on the final 3%. I just want to state something that's true for many of us in the room. Some of you have been in a battle. You've been in an uphill struggle. I think for every mom in the room, to some degree, motherhood is always pushing the weight uphill. Always. And you're in, you've, you've been faithful, you've seen a lot of movement, a lot of time has passed, but it's not quite done. It's not quite over. There are marriages in the room, and you guys have done some great work over the last few years, working through some incredible obstacles. But the truth is, is it's not done yet. And sometimes, even though you're close, you can feel like, even though it's only 3% from complete, it can feel like it's miles away. If you've ever felt that way, like, my goodness, it's so close, I can see the thing, I can smell it, we're that close. If you've ever been there and you've experienced the delay of the final 3% on a building project in your life, you know exactly what I'm talking about. How that it seems like the final little bit can be the hardest sometimes. That's exactly where Nehemiah is going to be in our story today. And before we get into the passages, I just want to give you a sentence to wrap your mind around. Let, let me just give this to you. It's, it's a thought that I have for every person that isn't quite yet there. The struggle isn't quite yet fully resolved. You made major movement, maybe financially, to get your house in order, but you still got that one big thing that you can't get over. Yeah, here's a thought I have for you, kind of as just as a pastor, my heart for you, is that every second you spend wishing God would take away a struggle, you forfeit opportunities to be an overcomer. See, the final 3% in your life is about being an overcomer. But I don't know about you, when it, com when it comes to me at least, like even on that home remodel job of doing the cove cutting and the cove basing and all that stuff, when I get to that point... There's something in me that's just like, I want to be so done. I want this to be so over. I get demotivated. I, believe it or not, I actually can get a little depressed where I've been so effective and then I get stuck and I feel here, here I feel powerless and I'm looking for escape. I'm looking for a way out. It's silly, but in that home remodel job, Jill and I had spent every last penny we had to make the job happen just to buy the product. So I knew it was on me. I couldn't call one of the handyman around church and go, hey, I've got a couple hundred bucks. Would you come in and fill it? If I did that, it's going to affect over here. I didn't see an easy way out. Now, that's silly, right? It's just a room. But what if it's not in your room? What if it's your marriage? And what if it's some issue in your parenting? What if it's some spiritual obstacle 
What if it's an addiction and you've made a lot of movement, but now you're in a season and the pressure is unbearable sometimes? How are you to be an overcomer when you're almost there already? This chapter is going to call us all to something that isn't very popular in the culture today. The idea of grit and tenacity. We've been talking about the power of faithfulness for the last few weeks. The idea that you stick with it. And your faith in God, who is faithful, is supposed to produce in us a faithfulness, a stick withedness, a, a grit and a tenacity. But it's only in matters of faith and only a handful of other areas of life that you're going to get called to tenacity and grit. Everywhere else, our culture is geared to get you out of the pressure point, to remove the pressure from you. And you're promised all kinds of things. If you'll just part with a few dollars, you can get rid of pressure. If you'll just give in to a few experiences, you can get rid of pressure. But when it comes to your spiritual development, God uses, God redeems the very pressures of life to produce in you an overcoming reality to produce in you a victory in your life. And sometimes the avoidance of the pressure, the non-engagement, the jumping over it, the taking the sideways around it, what it actually does is it robs you of the very thing God's trying to develop in your life. In chapter 6, Nehemiah's got just a little bit more work to do. And yet some of the most emotional obstacles come at him. Some of the most personal. This is no longer about lifting heavy stones. That's a physical feat. This is now about a personal human dynamic that's going to come to him. And even though it's a couple thousand years ago in a very different geography and a very different set of geopolitical pressures, you're going to be able to relate to it. Because in some form or another, you've been here just like he is. So let's go ahead and look at verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 6 and work our way through this passage, and then we'll talk about it a little bit, all right? When, the word of the, uh, when, the, when word came to Sanballat, and in our story, if you're our guest first time with us, thanks for being here. We've been looking at this passage, and the folks who have been here with us for the last five weeks know that Sanballat is one of the enemies of the work that Nehemiah is trying to do. And in fact, he's actually an enemy of Nehemiah personally. He's not just opposed to the work in some objective way. He's actually opposed to Nehemiah. And Sanballat had a certain status in the country. And when Nehemiah comes in to rebuild the walls, the favor of the people starts turning towards Nehemiah. And Sanballat gets jealous. And while he looks like he's opposing the work, he's really opposing what he believes Nehemiah has that he wants. So Sanballat's the bad guy. And then there's Tobiah, who's his partner in crime. And then there's Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though at this time I had not set the doors and the gates. So the walls are done. The stones are, are in place, but the wooden gates that have been burned are not yet put in. So there's wide open gateways all around the wall, about six of them. So... I had not set the doors in their gates. So verse 2, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plains of Ono. Which is an interesting 
name of a geographic location because when Nehemiah is, in, is invited to the plains of Ono, you're going to discover he says, oh, oh no, I'm not going. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not going. It's kind of, you can remember it that way. Don't go to the plains of Ono, all right? So here's the deal. They've been struggling, Nehemiah, Tobiah, Geshem, they've been struggling uh, as Nehemiah's tried to build this wall and all of the efforts of Sanballat to rally the other people, we read about that in chapter 3 and 4, all of his you know, uh, uh, threats of harm, none of it's worked. Now he's saying, all right, you're really close. Here's what we need to do. We need to have a private conference. We need to talk about this. We need to sit down and figure this out. So the invitation on the surface seems very pleasant and kind. It seems like, oh, we're just going to chat. But you're going to discover something else is really going on here. So here's what Nehemiah tells us in his book. But they were scheming to harm me. Here's the sad reality about life. It's just true. We live in a broken world. And not everybody has honorable intentions. That's just the truth. And sometimes even people who have honorable intentions don't have the skill sets to pull it off. And so it's not unusual. We should not be surprised when relational dynamics get hard. I mean, it shouldn't surprise you in a broken and fallen world where people can be selfish. That's one of the things we've talked about in this message series. When a couple stands before each other, looks each other in the eyes, they're standing before their friends and family in an audience, they're standing before a minister, and they're ultimately standing before God, and they make promises they have every intention to keep. I love you. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to cherish you. And they mean it. I mean, there's no insincerity at all in their hearts. It's about as sincere and beautiful a moment as can be represented. But then a few months pass, and it's clear that the promises were easier to speak than they were to live out. You ever notice that? It's much easier to give a promise. I have teenage kids in our home. My kids are wonderful. My kids are probably better than your kids. I'm just saying. I, I, but they're not perfect. So I promise I'll take out the trash. That's easy to say, isn't it? Promise your dad by this time. All right. And I'm a sucker. I'm a sucker. All right. Go ahead and finish the video game. Go ahead and do the thing. And then you know what happens? I get up the next morning, more than once, the trash isn't taken out. Simple, right? Promises are easy to speak, even when they're sincere and they're met, but living it out can be hard. So it shouldn't surprise us when people look at each other face to face, make promises, and then discover, oh my goodness, it was much easier to make those promises than it was to live the promises. It, it, it shouldn't surprise you, although it often does, that when a person gives their life over to Jesus, <laughs> that they have to live in a fallen world. Sometimes I wish when people would give their hearts to Jesus, God would just take them onto heaven. That'd be sad. I'd do a lot more funerals. I don't, I don't enjoy that. But life would be easier for you because your life is over and you get to go on to heaven right away. Because here's the truth. When you commit your life to Jesus or you're already a follower of Jesus, but you make a new commitment to press into all that he has for you, here's just the raw truth. Until you reach heaven's shore and you breathe your last breath, between here and there, there's a lot of junk there is. Nehemiah is doing the most noble task in the world. He is selfless. It's not about him. He was fine. Out of all the slaves, he had it the best. But he gives himself to the good work in front of him. 
And God's favor's on him. And people are jumping in and helping, even while there's opposition. But the opposition is always present. And he's so close. The only thing left, the only thing left is to put the doors on. And people are sending messages under the pretense of connection when what they really want to do is take advantage of him. They really want to harm him. So they sent word, but they really wanted to harm me. Verse number three. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. And I don't know if you highlight or underline, but this is a really great verse, all right? This, hey, this verse is going to set some people free, honestly. This is really, really good. This verse can give you clarity. It's a couple thousand years old. It's a different time, different place, different circumstance. But this is really, really good, all right? So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? I'm carrying on a great work and I cannot go down. He's up there. He's working on the walls. He's perhaps getting the hinges ready to set the door. He's up on a ladder, if you will, and he's up there doing a great work. And these people have been constant. I mean, it's been constant. And it seems so friendly. I mean, there's been so much hostility between Sam Ballot and Geshem and Nehemiah. And now they just want to sit down over coffee and chat. But Nehemiah sees through it. He's learning the world around him. But more than that, he is laser focused on the good work that God had called him to. And he says, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. I wonder, I'm just throwing this out. I wonder what great work the Lord has called you to. Over the last few weeks, I've pressed you to press into that question. What in this season of your life is the great thing that God has called you to? Now, some of you have been honest on your connect cards and in conversations we've had, and you've said, I know in this season of my life, God's calling me to step up and get my financial house in order. You know, don't be a slave to the lender. Spend within my means. And you know that. And then you're like, you're watching television and, and you're seeing the advertisements for that thing that you want for me in my house. It's all, I'm going to tell you what it always is. We're car people. We love cars. We love cars. Like it's almost unhealthy. So we'll be on vacation and we'll drive two hours out of town to go to some place that's known to have really nice cars. Like, we've driven four hours sometimes just to go look at a parking lot where somebody had taken a picture of a really, we're messed up, friends. I'm just telling you. <laughs> if you knew how much of an, like, it's just, it's just cars. So in our house, we'll be watching TV and there'll be a car commercial. And I'll be like, I, I need a new car. And I'll find myself sitting there thinking about it, right? And then I remember that because we like nice cars, I tend to buy nice cars. I probably just can't afford nice cars, so I have to buy them with a lot of miles, so almost every, every car I own has over 100,000 miles on it, right? And so I'm thinking about the, the car that we primarily drive. It's sitting in the driveway, and I have to add a quart of oil to it every week. There's nothing wrong with that. I, and so I'm saying, I need a new car. And then I start going, and my car leaks. And the little plastic trim's coming off, and the emblem on the back door has fallen off three times, and that's really embarrassing. And, you know, Pastor, yeah, he's got a certain image he has to uphold anyway. And, uh, and, and the Lord wants me to have nice things, right? Isn't that the way this goes? Now, this is just a car, friends, right? 
It doesn't sound spiritual at all. But I can sit and I can get within a half a step of convincing myself to get in my broken down car right now and go get a new one. That's not, would that be wrong? No, 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 no. But that doesn't match what I'm trying to do over here financially that I feel like God's called us to do so that we can do other things. So here's a little phrase. I'm doing a great work over here. I can't come down. That's just a car. (laughs) Jill and I have been married going on 29 years. It's been awesome. It's the best 25 years of my life. All right, so... Yeah, there were a few years that weren't so awesome, I ain't going to lie. So here we are, we're doing a great thing. You know, we're building a life together, but we're also doing kingdom work together. Our mission in our marriage is about the kingdom of God, and we're doing a great work together. But there are seasons where it's like everything wants to pull away from that. There are things outside that press in on us. There are things inside of us that manifest. There are things in her and things in me. We can be, both be very selfish on occasion. Honestly, me more than her. She's a very giving person. And it's really easy in moments like that to think, really? This is what we're doing? Why are we doing? What? This is too hard. I mean, you would think after 28 years, we'd never have to have a conversation. We just, but it, and in those moments, you know what I have to say to myself? We're doing a great work. We're not coming down for that. We're not, we're not stopping what we're doing for that over there. That's not worth it. That's a trap. I, I am a pastor. You'd expect me to say this, but the truth is, is every follower of Jesus is called to do what I'm about to say. I get busy weeks. I don't know about you. Do you ever, ever have a busy week? Do you ever have a busy month? How about a busy quarter? You ever had a busy quarter? That gets tiring. You know, something happens, you don't expect it. We're in the middle right now of some construction over here, and it's going great, but it is a little extra pressure on me, even though we have great help around here, and the, the people who are doing the project, I mean, they're, they're killing it, but still, I feel it. And so there are times when it's just busy. And when I get busy, you know what happens for me? My Bible reading, it'll begin to dip. My prayer times get a little hurried. It just does. I've been, I've been walking with Jesus since I was five years old. Now, truth is, he walked with me better than I walked with him, but we've been doing it together for a long time, about 30 years, so I'm about 35. <laughs> I knew you guys are too smart. You're doing the math the whole time I'm talking, right? No, we've been together for a long time, and so, but when I don't give myself to that good stuff, because I got other stuff over here, I have to tell myself, I'm doing a good thing over here. I'm not going to go down for that. I'm not going to get distracted by that. I'm doing a good work. When I give myself, you know what I'm learning? I'm learning that I'm too busy not to pray. The the work is too important for me not to invest in my own development. My life is too chaotic for me not to make time to regularly listen to messages. Here's the thing. On Sunday morning, guess what? I don't get to listen to a message. So I have to, on Monday mornings and Tuesdays, it's typically when I do it, I go find a, a, a couple pastors that I really enjoy, and I listen, and I say, God, would you speak to me through them? Because I'm too busy, my life is too chaotic for me not to make the investment. This is just a different way of saying, I'm doing a good work, I'm not going to go down. I'm not going to go down for that. When I was a student, there was always an opportunity not to do the work that a student is supposed to do, which is study and make the grade. There was always an opportunity. 
There's always some friend going over here and some thing over here and some reason not to over there. But I'm doing a good work. This is what the Lord has called me to in this season. I'm not going to go down for that. So let me just ask you one more time. What is the good work that God has called you to that the enemy is going to try to distract you away from? And you can tell yourself, hey, we're almost done. The only thing left is the gates. I mean, we're so close. I mean, really, what, how, how much harm could it do to go down and have a conversation? But if it's a distraction from the work that the Lord has called you to do in this season of your life, it's a distraction that will bring you harm. I'm doing a good work. I cannot come down. Four times, the Bible says in verse 4, four times they sent the same messenger, and each time I gave them the same answer. The fifth time, Sanballat sent his personal aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which it was written, an unsealed letter. That means it could be read, which means that everywhere from the time the messenger got the commission from Sanballat to take the letter to Nehemiah, everywhere he went, people could read the letter. The implication here is that the letter had been read by many people many times. Sanballat's stirring up a storm. He's getting ready towards gossip. He's getting ready to turn, attempt to turn the PR against Nehemiah and the good work that he's doing. See, up to this point, a lot of the threat has been very personal, or very physical, not very personal and relational. But over the last couple chapters, it's gotten up close and personal to Nehemiah's heart. The, the, the distraction is coming from his closest and most emotionally felt relationships. The people that he's caring for, there's words circulating around him. And here, here's what was written. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. So now they're going to spread rumors. Here's what you're doing. You're building the walls because you're going to revolt against the king. Now remember, Nehemiah's been serving in the house of the king. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become the king. Uh-oh. And you've even appointed prophets to make the proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. Now this doesn't sound horrible until you realize it's horrible. What Sanballat is accusing and making sure everybody knows is that Nehemiah is not interested in the people. He's not interested in the wall. What he's trying to do is set up his own kingdom. And he's actually going to build the walls so that he can withstand an attack from the king who's all the way over there in that other city. So what's happening here is there's all kinds of gossip swirling about him. And not just with one or two people. They're making it public. Let me, let me just say something that Jesus made very, very plain. That if you give yourself to the good work of God in you, there's going to be a time, it's going to happen, friends, truth in advertising here, when you're going to find resistance and it's going to come up close and personal and it's likely that your very character will come under attack. It will. It'll happen in simple ways like you start to make your family more of a priority and some of the free time that you would give yourself to your friends and to the frivolity there, which isn't wrong, but you're just doing too much of it. And you start to pull back on that and you become more of a man who's investing intentionally in his wife and kids, you're going to get some pushback. The guy friends around you are going to say things about you. I've watched this happen to guys in their 20s when they finally step up and realize they actually want to be an adult and they start doing the adult things. Their friends will look at them and imply, who do you think you are? And they'll say things to them like, man, she's got you under her thumb. 
Or you decide to buckle down and get a handle on your finances, which the reason I keep bringing that up, if you want to know, one of the number one challenges in this church surfaced when people are transparent is the truth is, is their financial house is in shambles. They don't even have a working operational spending plan, or you might call it a budget. And they've got two or three credit cards. They're using credit cards sometimes to pay for credit cards. And so you make a decision to do that, and so the amount of money you're spending on self-entertainment is going down, and the people that are enjoying the overflow of that, and they start going, man, he, all of a sudden, he's gotten all serious about life. And it's said jokingly, but what it really is, is at least in the mind of your ultimate enemy, is an attempt to take you off the wall. And it'll come from the people closest to you. Or you'll make some personal decision for the Lord, and you'll give yourself to something, and people will call you a fanatic. It happens. Jesus said that you should not be surprised when people say all kinds of things about you as you press in to a relationship with God. You shouldn't be surprised. And we know intuitively it's likely to come. That's why some of us don't make public to even our closest friends, the people we call friends. We won't make public the thing on our heart about what God's calling us to because we're afraid of how they'll react even though the secret desire of our heart is to give ourselves to that thing. But we know how they'll probably react and we call them our friends. You're in the same exact position emotionally that Nehemiah is going through. So he says to them, I sent this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. Nehemiah wasn't there to overthrow the king. He's not raising up walls so they can resist the king's invasion. He's not sending prophets out to prophesy that he's going to be the new king. And that king over there that sent him, that gave him people, that gave him money and, and uh, an authority to build the wall. He's not, he, none of that's happening. So Nehemiah says, here's, here's the thing. You're just making this up. Which, by the way, is a very thin response on one level to any kind of accusation. Ah, that's not true. You're just making that. That's a very thin and shallow and hollow response. Unless it's accurate. See, Nehemiah didn't need to so much convince. Here, here's where we get into trouble. Nehemiah didn't need to convince Sanballat that what Sanballat was saying was a lie. Sanballat already knew that. Nehemiah had to state for himself the truth. I hear you. It's not true. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. I wonder what truth you need to speak to yourself. Can I be honest with you? Sometimes I just need to preach to myself. It's not unusual sometimes for me to shut the door. That's my office. Shut the door, sit at my desk, and just out loud say some things to myself. So I can rehearse some of that for you. You'll, listen, if, if you don't know yet, I, I need therapy. It's okay. It's all right. It's all right. But let me just tell you, so here's the thing I have to say to myself. I'll repeat one we've already said. Ben, you, you really are doing a good work. And there's room for improvement, but you're not done. So don't go down. Don't get distracted. I said I have to say stuff like that to myself. Here, here's another one. Ben, you don't need everybody to like you. You don't. You don't need everybody to like you in order to do the thing that God's called you to do. I've said this to myself about 50 times. Ben, your kids don't have to make you feel like an awesome dad every minute of the day for you to be an awesome dad. In fact, if you're going to be an awesome dad, they're probably going to sometimes they're going to tell you you're, an awesome, you're, you're a terrible dad. I just have to preach to myself sometimes. I do. 
When I'm pressing in on some marriage thing, you know, maybe some communication thing with Jill, I have to tell myself, the fact that you had a fight about that thing over there doesn't mean it's not worth fighting for. I wonder, I wonder if you need to preach to yourself anything at all. Yep, we're fighting about this lately, but honest to goodness, that's worth fighting for. I have to tell myself sometimes, the presence of conflict does not mean the absence of the direction of God. The presence of conflict does not mean that God's not in it. In fact, Jesus told us if you go after God, you're going to feel some stuff from time to time, and it ain't going to be pleasant. Here's why I have to do that, because if I don't tell myself that, I'm looking for the easiest path. I'm looking for the easiest way. And I'm just going to tell you something. The path to your greatness, the path to your following God, the path to your purpose, the path to your legacy is not going to be easy. It's not going to be conflict-free. It's not. The life God wants to build in you is going to be full of conflict. And one more time. If you, every time you face conflict, wish away the conflict, wish away, pray away the conflict, pray away the pressure, you might be forfeiting the very thing God wants to make in your life, that you are an overcomer, that you're growing through it, that you're pressing through it. We'll do two more verses, then we'll make a couple of comments, all right? Verse number nine, they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed. Here's what he said to the Lord. Now strengthen my hands. Now you can read the rest of the passage. Jump to the other side of your message notes. Let's fill in some blanks, all right? Here we go. First thing I'd like for you to remember is there's always hope. And here's why, because Jesus is with us. Over 365 times, the Bible tells us, do not be afraid. That's one, at least one for every day of the year. Do not be afraid. Jesus' last words to his disciples before he goes to heaven. In the Great Commission, when he's telling us, right over here on this wall on this sign, go and make disciples. The last phrase in that, and I will be with you always. So God tells Joshua, when Joshua was going through it in the Odds were stacked against him. Be strong and courageous. Number two then, do not fear is repeated 365 times in the Bible. So what it comes down to is trusting God here. Number three, trusting God is more than believing that he exists. It is trusting that his character is good and true and that his path is good for you. Even when there's pressure. Even when sometimes the people closest to you don't get it. Number four, until the real job is finished, you are not done. So what's the real job God's called you to? He didn't call you to a conflict-free marriage. He didn't. He called you to a godly marriage. He didn't call you to easy parenting. He called you to pass on the faith to your kids, and that's hard work. Because the Bible tells us rebellion abounds in the heart of a child. You know how I know that's true even if the Bible didn't tell me that? Because it abounded in my heart. And I will tell you this, rebellion abounds in the heart of most adults too. It's hard work. 
So there will be conflict. You have an enemy of your soul. You have a broken world. You have your own selfishness and the brokenness of those around you. So until the real job is done, you're not done. The final 3%. Number five, there's a big difference between good things and best things. It might would have sounded good for Nehemiah to go down and have a conversation. Like, what could it hurt? It's just a conversation with my enemies. Maybe we'll make peace. But the task in front of him was get that wall finished. He knew what it was. And he wasn't willing to trade something good or something that wasn't a sin because he was going after God's best for him. Number six, a made-up mind is the antidote to being susceptible to distraction. Can I ask you, is there anything in your life right now that you've made up your mind about? Anything at all? I'm not, I'm in many ways a terrible example to follow. And one of the biggest burdens of my leadership is I know that the very fact of the role I play in this church, I am an example. And there's a lot I've done wrong. You follow me with the camera for a few weeks, you probably never come back to this church, honestly. Like, it's just the truth. I, I, my, my attitude can swing. I, I, got a lot of work, I got a lot of room to grow. But there are a couple things I've done right. I made up my mind about a few things. And a made-up mind gets you way down the road on a lot of issues. I made up my mind that to the best of my ability, I would fight for my marriage if that meant fighting my marriage for my marriage. I made up my mind as best as I knew how, I was going to do everything I could to drive an anchor in the lives of my children so that no matter how far sin in the world and their own selfishness will pull them, there'll be an anchor that holds. I made up my mind that to the best of my ability, we'd create a church. If God would allow me, I'd lead a church that would be good for families. We'd be able to invite our friends to it. They could get serious about God and we wouldn't compromise the truth of God at all. There'd be zero compromise, but we'd talk about it in ways that were approachable and understandable. We wouldn't condescend spiritually to people. And not one of those decisions has ever been easy for me. So what have you made up your mind about? What have you made up your mind about? Because a made up mind can help you identify the distractions. Number seven, gossip What other people say about you will never be more powerful than what your heavenly father thinks of you. Don't let it be. I'm surprised by the kinds of things people have said about me, my family, and others, leaders in this church as we've tried to lead. They have a disagreement about something that's relatively inconsequential, and then the things that are said about the character of people, I'm just going to be honest with you, people can be very mean. But I learned a long time ago, That what people say about me is not near as important as what my heavenly father says about me. And sometimes I have to remind myself sitting in my office, what they said about me doesn't matter near as much as what my heavenly father says about me. Because on the day of judgment, God's not going to call anybody over to the throne and say, hey, before I talk to Ben, what should I know about him? Never going to happen. Nobody's there. God's not going to consult one of you for his opinion about me. You know what that means? I can live eternally at rest if you don't like me. I can. Now, I can't live necessarily right now if you don't like me because I need you to like me. In fact, I need you to adore me. (laughs) But in eternity, it ain't going to matter. So I hope you do. But I'm doing too good a work to let me come down to that level down there and make that my goal. I'm doing too good a work. And you're called to too good a work. To let what other people, what your heavenly father says about you. Number eight. No, everyone is not saying things. They're not. They're not. 
Everyone is not saying something about you. But even if a thousand people were, if they were to repeat a lie, it doesn't make it true. You don't need the affirmation of everybody to do the work of the Lord. Now, it's nice when your closest friends are with you and they're cheering you on. I've got a couple people on speed dial. I can just, and usually about twice a week, I talk to one of my closest friends and we go through stuff, we press through, and they're almost always a word of encouragement and a hold on and They'll repeat back to me the promises of God. I mean, I count those as my closest relationships. But even without them, you don't need everybody. You need you and God to do. It's nice when you have the rest. Number nine, you can fear the Lord or you can fear people. It's a fundamental choice that every disciple has to make. You're going to go after God or you're going to go after people-pleasing. Number 10, I didn't read the verses, but you can. I don't know how long you think it took Nehemiah to build the walls, but let me give you a little statement. Nehemiah prayed for four months before he ever moved a stone, and then only took 54 days to build the wall. 54 days. Prayed for four months and worked for 54 days. Over 40% of the content of this book is Nehemiah talking to God and about God. It's pretty big, pretty big portion of the book. It's not about the walls, but one of the things that he makes clear is that your engagement of your heavenly father in the process of building your life, your active engagement, your ongoing conversation with him is essential to the work you're going to do. And if you're trying to battle your financial issues without the Lord's input, good luck with that. It's hard enough as it is, maybe. I mean, there's some wisdom out there. You can do a lot. But if you're a follower of Jesus, invite God into that issue. And if you're trying to battle your marriage issues without actively talking to the Lord about it, your heart, her heart, his heart, the whole bit, good luck. Maybe you can. I mean, maybe just communicating better will do it. But what if at the root of it, it's not a communication issue. There's a sin issue or there's a lack of development issue. What if that's really what's going on? And the Lord needs to clean that up and no amount of good work on your life is going to make the work of the Holy Spirit happen. So inviting God in like Nehemiah did over and over and over again is paramount of importance to the work God wants to do in your life. I'm doing a good work. I cannot come down. What about you? What good work are you giving yourself to that nobody is going to be able to distract you from? What call of your heart are you willing to go to God consistently for and say, God, this is so important. I will not give up. I want you to be a part of it. God, as you speak, I listen. And I'll consider what others are saying. I'm not closed-minded. I'm open. But at the end of the day, God, your voice is going to be the loudest voice in my life. And I'm looking for you to say to me, well done and good and faithful. I don't need anybody else to do it. When you get there, friends, and you walk with Jesus, let me tell you what's happened. You have begun to understand what it is to trust the Lord that his path for you is good, that his plans for you are good. And God has called every single follower of Jesus to that. A bold tenacity that your heavenly father's nod of approval is all that you need. So Nehemiah finished the wall. And in chapter 7 and chapter 8 and on through it, an incredible revival breaks out in Israel. And the hearts of the people turn back to the Lord. It's amazing what simple acts of obedience will do to open you up to spiritual vitality. So what has the Lord called you to? Let's grab out our connect cards. Let's take a couple steps together. Next step A, every week around here, we give people a chance to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of their lives. 
And if you're not yet in an active relationship with your heavenly father, you need to know that his heart for you is good. And the Bible says that you can begin a relationship with him by a simple admission. It takes a little humility, but a simple admission. I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. No good work I can do earns me God's favor. So I'm going to trust the work that Jesus did. Not my work, but Jesus' work. When he gave his life on a cross and was resurrected from a tomb. I'll trust in that work alone to secure my relationship to my heavenly father. That's called grace. And I'd ask you to take your pen and check next step A if you feel that stirring in your heart. When the offering bucket comes by in a moment, you put that card in there. Or how about next step B? Today I'm choosing to be baptized. Last year we baptized 70 people in this church who went down under the water demonstrating that they're dying to the old life and they're being raised to new life in Christ. And if you have questions about it or want to be baptized, you just check the box. Next step, C says, God, I'll stay focused on your call to me. I'll not turn to the right nor the left. I'll not come down because the work I'm doing is important. And if you'll check that box, I'll send this little couple sentence prayer to you. You can pray it every morning. God, today, I'm going to stay focused on your call to me. The next morning, God, today, I'm going to stay focused on your call to me. Next step, D. It's a verse to memorize. I think when you hide God's word in your heart, it can help you. Here's what it says. Joshua 1.9. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. That's a word from the Lord, literally in the word of God for some of us today. Now, next step, E, is about life in this church. Summer is in. Families are a big deal around here, and some of our kids' volunteers need to take vacations, and we're going to let them, all right? They get to do that. In fact, we're thrilled for them, too. And when they do, sometimes our volunteer-rich environment has a few gaps. Next Step E gives you a chance to say, hey, I'll fill in a week or two. So if you check the box, you're going to get about six options, one week, two week, three week, four week, that you can help fill in over the summer and give some of our incredible volunteers in kids ministry a chance to take a break and you'll get oriented you don't have to know anything you're not signing your life away you're not going to be there in a year it's just for the summer all right so if you want to do that just check the box you can see the email and then respond to that why don't you set your connect card aside right now if you call this church home in the next few minutes you have an opportunity to give back to the lord a portion of what he's blessed you with and if you're our guest today you should know you're sitting around some incredibly generous people They make possible a place where families are literally transformed, where marriages are literally saved. The verse we rally around often, I'll give to you, it's the verse both in the Old and the New Testament, Malachi and in the Gospels, that when Jesus is at work, when God's doing his work, the hearts of the fathers are turned back to the children, and the hearts of the children are turned back to the parents. In other words, there's family harmony when God's fully at work. And that's our prayer for you. And when you give to this church, you're making possible the direct engagement of that need in our culture and in our community. That families would grow to love Jesus more. And out of the overflow of that, they'd be blessed. So thank you for your faithfulness. In just a matter of a few weeks, we're going to dedicate our new kids space. We only can do that because you have been kind and generous. It's almost as if you believe that God's blessed you with stuff in part so that you could be a blessing to his work. And I'm grateful for it. Let's pray about our next steps in our offering. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you. God, thank you that you give us stories like Nehemiah that are old, that are in a different time or place, but they speak powerfully into our lives. God, here's the truth. I know you have called all of us to a great work. I pray, God, that we would be laser focused. 
that we would not get distracted, that we would not come down because we have a good work to do. And I pray, God, that we'd begin to value your voice above every other voice, that while we're open to input and criticism and and to feedback, at the end of the day, God, it would be your opinion about us that matters more than anybody else. Father, I want to lift up marriages in this room right now. God, I pray that men and women would boldly pursue you. And then as they do that, you would heal marriages. God, I want to pray for for, uh, sons and daughters in this room today. That, God, you would grab their hearts. You would pull them to you, and they'd be open and receptive to it. God, I pray for those that are dating. and I pray, God, that, that your design for their life would be the highest priority, nothing else that is offered, but your design for them. We're grateful, God, for what you're doing in families here. I pray for the men and women in this room right now who are saying, Jesus, wash away my sins. Cover me by your shed blood. I trust you and you alone to secure my salvation. So God, would you take our next steps? Would you take our offering today? And would you help us to go far and wide with it? For your glory, for your impact in this world, for your good. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen. And amen.